Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we are looking to get intentional. No more flying by the seat of our pants, waiting for our big break or hoping for more. We are recommitting to living a life with meaning so that we can dictate the type of legacy we leave and the impact we have on this world. Have you ever stepped back and looked at your role and the influence you've had? What do you think they would say if you could be a fly on the wall and visit the important and unimportant people in your life? What has been your impact? What will you be remembered for? When asked this question, most people start with, well, I hope they say, let's secure that legacy by living a more meaningful life now. Let's make a more conscious effort to impact people in a positive way directly versus hoping they remember the good things about you and forget the rest. You see, you have the power to affect change, and it starts with you. Many people believe there are three types of people. The thinkers, the connectors, and the doers. Some people think there are big idea folks, and then the others who carry out those ideas. And yes, it takes everyone to make the world go round, but never count yourself short of any talent or skill. You can dramatically alter the life of one person at a time with your kindness and encouragement. This is how to start a positive ripple. Think about it. You influence someone in a positive way, and then they turn and do the same thing in their own network. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. I break it down so digestible because I think we have a tendency to overcomplicate terms like finding your purpose or live a life with meaning. These are what thinkers figure out and then tell us how to get it right. Not entirely. You need to trust in yourself as you search for meaning. Your journey is personal and unique. To kick us off and get us thinking in this context, let's explore. Over at The Pursuit of Happiness, we learn about Viktor Frankl and man's search for meaning. Viktor Emil Frankl was born 1905 and died in 1997. He was an Austrian neurologist, psychiatrist, and Holocaust survivor. He devoted his life to studying, understanding, and promoting meaning. His famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, tells the story of how he survived the Holocaust by finding personal meaning in the experience, which gave him the will to live through it. He went on to later establish a new school of existential therapy called logotherapy, based in the premise that man's underlying motivator in life is a will to meaning, even in the most difficult of circumstances. Frankel pointed to research indicating a strong relationship between meaninglessness and criminal behaviors, addictions, and depression. Without meaning, people fill the void with hedonistic pleasures, power, materialism, hatred, boredom, or neurotic obsessions and compulsions. 
Some may also strive for supreme meaning, the ultimate meaning in life, a spiritual kind of meaning that depends solely on a greater power outside of personal or external control. Striving to find meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. Logotherapy developed in and through Frankel's personal experience in a Nazi concentration camp. The years spent there deeply affected his understanding of reality and the meaning of human life. His most popular book, Man's Searching for Meaning, chronicles his experience in the camp as well as the development of logotherapy. During this time, he found those around him who did not lose their sense of purpose and meaning in life were able to survive much longer than those who had lost their way. Frankel notes that logotherapy aims to unlock the will to meaning in life. More often than not, he found that people would ponder the meaning of life when, for Frankel, it was very clear that it is life itself that asks questions of man. Paradoxically, by abandoning the desire to have freedom from, we take the freedom to make the decision for one's unique and singular life task. Logotherapy developed in a context of extreme suffering, depression, and sadness, and so it's not surprising that Frankel focuses on a way out of these things. His experience showed him that life can be meaningful and fulfilling even in spite of the harshest circumstances. On the other hand, he also warns against the pursuit of hedonistic pleasures because of its tendency to distract people from their search for meaning in life. Only when the emotions work in terms of values can the individual feel pure joy. In the pursuit of meaning, Frankel recommends three different courses of action through deeds, the experience of values through some kind of medium, like beauty or art, relationships, or suffering. While the third is not necessarily in the absence of the first two, within Frankel's frame of thought, suffering became an option through which to find meaning and experience values in life in the absence of the other two opportunities. Though for Frankel, joy could never be an end to itself. It was an important byproduct of finding meaning in life. He points to studies where there is marked differences in lifespans between trained, tasked animals, animals with purpose, and other non-purposeful animals. And yet, it's not enough simply to have something to do. Rather, what counts is the manner in which one does the work. As mentioned, Frankel seeks our ability to respond to life and to be responsible to life as a major factor in finding meaning and therefore fulfillment in life. In fact, he viewed responsibility to be the essence of existence. He believed that humans were not simply the product of heredity and environment and that they had the ability to make decisions and take responsibilities for their own lives. This third element of decision is what Frankel believed made education so important. He felt that education must be education towards the ability to make decisions, take responsibility, and then become free to be the person you decide to be. Frankel is careful to state that he doesn't believe in one size fits all. It's not the answer to the meaning of life. 
His respect for human individuality and each person's unique identity, purpose, and passion does not allow him to do otherwise. And so he encourages people to answer life and find one's own unique meaning in life. When posed the question of how this might be done, he quotes from Gotha, How can we learn to know ourselves? Never by reflection, but by action. Try to do your duty, and you will soon find out what you are. But what is your duty? The demands of each day. In quoting this, he points to the importance attached to the individual doing the work and the manner in which the job is done, rather than the job or task itself. Frankel's logotherapy utilizes several techniques to enhance the quality of one's life. First is the concept of paradoxical intention, where the therapist encourages the patient to intend or wish for, even if only for a second, precisely what they fear. A young doctor had a major hydrophobia. One day, meeting his chief on the street, as he extended his hand in greeting, he noticed that he was perspiring more than usual. The next time he was in a similar situation, he expected to perspire again. And this anticipatory anxiety precipitated excessive sweating. It was a vicious cycle. The doctors advised him, when the anxiety occurs, to deliberately show people how much he could actually sweat. A week later, he returned to report that whenever he met anyone who triggered his anxiety, he said to himself, I only sweated out a little before, but now I'm going to pour at least 10 liters. What was the result of this resolution? After suffering from this phobia for four years, he was quickly able, only after one session, to free himself for good. To further explain this, this is just a little bit of a transcript from Frankel's advice to Anna, a 19-year-old art student. Anna said, what is going on within me? Frankel said, don't brood over yourself. Don't inquire into the source of your trouble. Leave that to the doctors. They will steer and pilot you through the crisis. Anna said, but this is inner turmoil. Frankel said, don't watch your inner turmoil, but turn your gaze to what is waiting for you. What counts is not what lurks in the depths, but what waits in the future. The patient said, but what's the origin of my trouble? Frankel said, don't focus on a question like this. Whatever the pathological process underlying your psychological affliction may be, we can cure it. Therefore, don't be concerned with the strange feelings haunting you. Ignore them until we make you get rid of them. Don't watch them. Don't fight them. Imagine they're not there at all. Let's listen to a little bit more from Victor as he talks about a search for meaning. Certainly nobody of us is spared suffering at one time or another. In his darkest hour began a new start. But everybody in the midst of suffering He's given me, has, given me a chance to bear testimony of the human potential at its best, which is to turn a personal tragedy into a human triumph. From his suffering in the Nazi concentration camps, Viktor Frankl salvaged a universal message on the meaning of life. 
Believe me, the one great lesson to learn from both types of camps and imprisonment was that under equal circumstances, those prisoners had the highest chance of survival, who were oriented toward the future. Victor Frankl. Perhaps some among you might have read or come across the book Man's Search for Meaning. Based on his widely acclaimed book, Man's Search for Meaning, Lifespan Learning Institute brings you a video recording of Victor Frankl's presentation entitled, The Search for Meaning in Life Today. You know that I think that survival is only possible or best guaranteed by meaning orientation. I put it in context with uh, uh, prison of war camps and so forth. How do we find meaning? Let me make clear that suffering has a meaning only and solely under the condition that you cannot remove the cause of suffering. What counts and matters then is the attitude you adopt to an unchangeable fate, to an unchangeable situation. You may and have to change your attitude. And the priority goes to actively changing a situation that caused suffer, had caused suffering. But the superiority goes to the attitude you heroically adopt when you cannot change the situation. I hope you understand what I uh, try to convey to you. His message is as relevant today as it was in the 1940s. What I want to state is, although suicides may not be undertaken out of a feeling of meaninglessness, they might have been overcome, the impulse to commit, one's, uh, to commit suicide might well have been overcome if those individuals had had a vision of a meaning to their lives. Don't miss your opportunity to own this rare video classic. It's in your hands, this responsibility, what you will be in 10 years and how you will look back and reflect the 10 years from now. I used to think accomplishment and making a mark on business was the legacy I wanted to leave. I remember my children early on describing me as a hard worker, always traveling, a boss. At the time, I was just thankful that they didn't say, she's a tyrant who always makes me clean my room. But as I started taking a step back from what I thought I knew to pursue what I didn't yet know, I realized that the legacy I wanted to leave was in my connections, in my kindness, and in the way I made others feel. My kids are adults now, but when asked, these are the attributes that they share about me. Wow, what a feeling to be thought of as kind, helpful, and encouraging. So much more than successful. Jill Sudi and Jason Marsh ask and explore an important question. Is a happy life different from a meaningful one? This is found at the Greater Good magazine from Berkeley. 
Philosophers, researchers, spiritual leaders, they've all debated what makes life worth living. Is it a life filled with happiness or a life filled with purpose and meaning? Is there even a difference between the two? Think of a human rights activist who fights oppression but ends up in prison. Are they happy? Or the social animal who spends their nights and some days jumping from party to party. Is that a good life? These aren't just academic questions. They can help us determine where we should invest our energy to lead the life we want. Recently, some researchers have explored these questions in depth, trying to tease apart the difference between a meaningful life and a happy one. Their research suggests there's more to life than happiness and even calls into question some previous findings from the field of positive psychology, earning it both a fair amount of press coverage and criticism. The controversy surrounding it raises big questions about what happiness actually means. While there may be more to life than happiness, there may also be more to happiness than pleasure alone. Five differences between a happy life and a meaningful one. A happy life and a meaningful life have some differences, says Roy Bomeister, a Francis Epps professor of psychology at Florida State University. He bases that claim on a paper he published last year in the Journal of Positive Psychology, co-authored with researchers at the University of Minnesota and Stanford. Bomeisters and his colleagues surveyed 397 adults looking for correlations between their levels of happiness, meaning, and various other aspects of their lives, like behavior, moods, relationships, health, stress levels, work lives, creative pursuits, and more. They found that a meaningful life and a happy life often go hand in hand, but not always. And they were curious to learn more about the differences between the two. Their statistical analysis tried to separate out what brought meaning to one's life, but not happiness, and what brought happiness, but not meaning. Their findings suggest that meaning, separate from happiness, is not connected with whether one is healthy, has enough money, or feels comfortable in life, while happiness, separate from meaning, is. More specifically, the researchers identified five major differences between a happy life and a meaningful one. Happy people satisfy their wants and needs, but that seems largely irrelevant to a meaningful life. Therefore, health, wealth, and ease in life were all related to happiness, but not meaning. Happiness involves being focused on the present, whereas meaningfulness involves thinking about the past, present, and future, and the relationship between them. In addition, happiness was seen as fleeting, while meaningfulness seemed to last longer. Meaningfulness is derived from giving to others. Happiness comes from what they give to you. Although social connections were linked to both happiness and meaning, Happiness was connected more to the benefits one receives from social relationships, especially friendships, while meaningfulness was related to what one gives to others, for example, taking care of children. Along these lines, self-described takers 
were happier than self-described givers, and spending time with friends was linked to happiness more than meaning, whereas spending more time with loved ones was linked to meaning, but not happiness. Are you following me? (laughs) Meaningful lives involve stress and challenges. Higher levels of worry, stress, and anxiety were linked to higher meaningfulness, but lower happiness which suggests that engaging in challenging or difficult situations that are beyond oneself or one's pleasures promotes meaningfulness, but not happiness. Self-expression is important to meaning, but not happiness. Doing things to express oneself and caring about personal and culture identity were linked to a meaningful life, but not a happy one. For example, considering oneself to be wise or creative was associated with meaning, but not happiness. One of the more surprising findings from the study was that giving to others was associated with meaning rather than happiness, while taking from others was related to happiness and not meaning. Though many researchers have found a connection between giving and happiness, Bowmeister argues that this connection is due to how one assigns meaning to the act of giving. If we just look at helping others, the simple effect is that people who help others are happier. But when you eliminate the effects of meaning on happiness and vice versa, he said, then helping makes people less happy so that all the effect of helping on happiness comes by a way of increasing meaningfulness. Bomeister's study raises some provocative questions about research in positive psychology that links kind, helpful, or pro-social activity to happiness and well-being. Yet his research has also touched off a debate about what psychologists and the rest of us really mean when we talk about happiness. Researchers, just like other people, have disagreed about the definition of happiness and how to measure it. Some have equated happiness with transient emotional states or even spikes of activity and pleasure centers of the brain, while others have asked people to assess their overall happiness or life satisfaction. Some researchers, like Ed Diener of the University of Illinois, a pioneer in the field of positive psychology, have tried to group together these aspects of happiness under the term subjective well-being, which encompasses assets of positive and negative emotions, as well as overall life satisfaction. These differences and definitions of happiness have sometimes led to confusing or even contradictory findings. For instance, in Bomeister's study, familial relationships like parenting tended to be tied to meaning more than happiness. Support for this finding comes from researchers like Robin Simone of Wake Forest University, who looked at happiness levels among 1,400 adults and found that parents generally reported less positive emotion and more negative emotions than people without kids. She concluded that while parents may report more purpose and meaning than non-parents, they're generally less happy than their childless peers. This conclusion irks happiness researcher Sonia Lumberski of the University of California, Riverside, who takes issue with studies that try too hard to rule out everything related to happiness. 
from their analysis but still draws conclusions about happiness. Imagine everything that you think would be great about parenting or about being a parent, she says. If you could control that, if you take it out of the equation, then of course parents are going to look a lot less happy. Sonia feels that researchers who try to separate meaning and happiness may be on the wrong track because meaning and happiness are inseparable and intertwined. When you feel happy and you take out the meaning part of happiness, it's not real happiness, she said. Yet this is basically how Bomeister and his colleagues defined happiness for the purpose of their study. So although the study referred to happiness, says Lombarski, Perhaps it was actually looking at something more like hedonic pleasure and the part of happiness that involves feeling good without the part that involves deeper life satisfaction. But is there happiness without pleasure? But is it ever helpful to separate out meaning from pleasure? Hmm. Some researchers have taken to doing this by looking at what they call eudaimonic happiness or the happiness that comes from meaningful pursuits and hedonic happiness, the happiness that comes from pleasure or goal fulfillment. A recent study by Stephen Cole at the UCLA School of Medicine and Barbara Fredrickson of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill found that people who reported more eudaimonic happiness had stronger immune system function than those who reported more hedonic happiness, suggesting that a life of meaning may be better for our health than seeking pleasure. A 2008 article published in the Journal of Happiness Studies found several positive health effects associated with eudaimonic happiness, including less reactivity to stress, less insulin resistance, which means less chance of developing diabetes, higher HDL, the good cholesterol levels, better sleep, and better brain activity patterns have been linked to decreased levels of depression. But happiness researcher Elizabeth Dunn thinks the distinction between eudaimonic and hedonic happiness is murky. She said, I think it's a distinction that intuitively makes a lot of sense but doesn't actually hold up under the lens of science. Dunn is an associate professor of psychology at the University of British Columbia. She's also authored numerous studies showing that giving to others increases happiness both in the moment, as measured by positive emotions alone, and in terms of overall satisfaction. Yay, finally! In a recently published paper, she and her colleagues surveyed data from several countries and found supporting evidence for this connection, including findings that showed subjects randomly assigned to buy items for charities reported higher levels of positive emotion, a measure of hedonic happiness, than participants assigned to buy the same items for themselves. She said, I think my own work really supports the idea that eudaimonic and hedonic well-being are surprisingly similar and aren't as different as one might think. To say that there's one pathway to meaning and that it's different than the pathway to pleasure is false. Like Lumbersky, she insists that meaning and happiness go hand in hand. She points to the work of researchers who found that positive emotions can help establish deeper social ties. 
which many argue is the most meaningful part of life. And to the University of Missouri psychologist Laura King's research, which found that feeling positive emotion helps people see the bigger picture and notice patterns which can help one aim for more meaningful pursuits and interpret one's experiences as meaningful. In addition, she argues that the measurements used to distinguish eudaimonic from hedonic happiness are too highly correlated to separate out in this way. Statistically speaking, doing so can make your results unreliable. Let's go back to Bomeister for a moment. Bomeister, though, clearly believes it is useful to make distinctions between meaning and happiness, in part to encourage more people to seek meaningful pursuits in life, whether or not doing so makes them feel happy. I think I can buy that. Still, he recognizes that the two are closely tied. Having a meaningful life contributes to being happy, and being happy may also contribute to finding a more meaningful life. I think there's evidence for both. But one piece of warning. If you're aiming strictly for a life of hedonic pleasure, you may be on the wrong path to finding happiness. For centuries, traditional wisdom has been that simply seeking pleasure for its own sake doesn't really make you happy in the long run. Instead, when aspiring to a well-lived life, it might make more sense to look for things you find meaningful, deep relationships, altruism, and purposeful self-expression, for example, than to look for pleasure alone, even if pleasure augments one sense of meaning. Work towards long-term goals. Do things that society holds in high regard for achievement or moral reasons. You draw meaning from a larger context, so you need to look beyond yourself to find the purpose in what you're doing. Chances are, you'll also find pleasure and happiness along the way. Life up to this point has gone super fast, am I right? Okay, maybe it didn't feel like this when I was waiting forever to turn 13, and then 16, and then 21. Kids took up my 20s and 30s, but now in my 50s, I'm like, what the heck? Where has all the time gone? It's also made me look at this middle-of-the-road age with one foot on either side. I've lost one parent, and my childhood memories seem further away with less detail. How do I hold on to what I know while opening myself up to learn more? I want to share it all, passing them on with the same color and impact they had on my life. I think about the days of the diary, scrapbooking, journaling, and photo albums. Now we have a collection of photos and alluring posts on Facebook, but not a rich chronicle of life we can pass on. No solution here, just bringing it to our attention. If someone was sifting through your personal effects, what story would they piece together? Nina Amir warns us to be mindful of the gaps in your life found on her blog. Mind the gap. She said, during the six days I spent in London recently, I heard these words every time I rode the subway. Mind the gap between the train and the platform. It's good advice, even if you aren't getting on or off a train. If you've ridden a subway anywhere in the world, you know there's a space between the train and the platform. 
However, it's easy to forget this fact and potentially get your foot caught in that space. The announcement made at the stop in London called my attention to the gap. So I would remain conscious and avoid it. Most of us go through our life paying little attention to the gaps, and there are many of them. Our lack of awareness leaves us prone to fall into these holes. For instance, if your health and fitness level could be improved, you aren't as healthy and fit as you'd like. Then there's a gap between health and fitness levels you want and the ones you have, right? To get to where you want to go, better health and fitness, you have to either step over or fill the gap. Stepping over the gap would mean experiencing the fantastic miracle of improved health, like spontaneous healing, for instance. While such miracles are few and far between, they do happen. When it comes to fitness, however, there are no miracles, just the hard work of exercise. This means you have to fill the gap. With no awareness of a gap in your health and fitness, you might suddenly become ill, fall into the hole. Or you might find yourself struggling to keep your energy up or discover that you have a fatal disease. Awareness helps you realize you need to do something so you avoid stepping into the space between good and bad health. With awareness, you can turn your attention to figuring out how to remove, shrink, or fill the space between where you are and where you want to go. Generally, to improve health and fitness, You might need to sleep more, start a daily exercise regimen, or go on a diet. Maybe you're unhappy with your relationships. A gap exists between the type of relationship you have and the ones you want. Given that you experience these relationships or maybe one relationship or on a regular basis, you have already become mindful of the gap between where you are and where you want to be. But you can't just step over it. How do you travel from the train to the platform or vice versa, a better relationship? You could go to individual or couples counseling. You might decide to spend more quality time with the people in your life to seek out new friendships or romantic partners or to speak up about your desires for a better relationship. Any of these activities will lessen or remove the gap in your relationship. Think about the gaps that you have in your life. What do you want to fill instead of stepping over to lead a more meaningful life? I want to leave you with this compelling TED Talk from Mink Haveman. It's about the importance of storytelling and leaving a legacy and filling those gaps in the story. Today, I'm going to tell you about my shoes. About five years ago, my mother took me out shoe shopping. She was a shoe addict. I was not. So she came up to me with these really pink, high-heeled shoes, and I told her, no, they're not for me, because shoes are for walking, right? No, my child, she said. Some shoes are for having. And these are, so I'm buying these for you, whether you will wear them or not, they're yours. So she did. And why am I telling you this? Because I know this story and you don't. You just see pink shoes. 
and I see the last present my mother ever bought for me. I see the lights in her eyes when she paid for them and handed me over the box. So, this is not about my shoes, this is about a legacy, about leaving stories for when you're not around to tell them anymore. So, this is a picture of me and my mom. It's a selfie before they were called selfies. <laughs> and we're sitting at the airport, waiting for a plane to take us to her last family holiday. It's taken two weeks after she bought me these shoes. And you might see smiling women in the camera. I see something different. I see myself three months pregnant with my first child, and I see my mother with a death sentence called very aggressive tumor, not treatable. We knew this was going to be our last holiday, and we knew I was going to be a mom while losing my own mom. So two months after this picture was taken, I wore these shoes to our cremation with proud. This is a picture of my father <laughs> at a to me unknown location with an unknown person wearing remarkable clothes. And I wish I could tell you more about this picture, but I can't. I just don't know the story behind this, and there are a lot of stories I don't know about. So, my father died a year before my mother did, and a similar tumor killed him. Age 26, I became an orphan, and that was something I didn't expect, and it happened really fast, and there I was with all these pictures and no stories. There were sitting a lot of strangers under our Christmas trees. So I did not only lose my parents, I lost their stories as well. And that's difficult, because I miss essential stuff. I miss my parents, obviously, and I miss that we cannot make new memories, but I also miss answers to questions I never knew I would have about being a parent myself, for example. So, I'm not complaining, because the legacy I did get <laughs> is pretty remarkable and filled with beautiful memories. It's just the gaps that I'm sad about, because pictures don't tell us thousands of words. They actually don't tell us anything, unless you know the stories. So during this last vacation, my mother said her goodbyes. She said to me, I'm not going to leave you any last lessons or any letters. I have faith in the fact that I taught you enough during your life to live the rest. She told me, you're brave, you're smart, you will survive. And though I understood why she had to say that, I could scream at her, how could she think this? I still needed her so bad. But I went on. And with this experience, I tried to collect my legacy of my life for my daughter. She's four years old now. <laughs> And this may sound like I'm living with death in the back of my head, but I'm not. I'm living a pretty happy life, and I get caught up in everyday, everyday stuff, like all of you. I just sit down every once in a while and try to collect my memories and my experiences and put them in words, in little stories. 
So she will know why she should never ever throw these shoes away and why this picture of me and my mom at the airport is so important to me. So she will know how proud I am of her and that she is the love of my life because she is entitled to that. She's entitled to a rich legacy and everyone is. So, okay, I know I can never be conclusive. I can never leave everything behind. But I also know that it's the little things that count. It's the story on the back of a picture. It's every spoken word, every voice recording. Everything is important. Everything counts. So I'm asking you to think about your legacy that you are leaving for those who will miss you. And by doing that, you will find that there are missing pieces in your life as well. And go get them. Do it, because you are entitled to a rich legacy, and you can only leave one if you know what it is. So are there questions you never ask? Go ask it. Find your parents, your grandparents, your friends, your lovers. Collect it. Because these pink shoes are part of my legacy, and I'm re really working hard to fill in the gaps for my daughter so she doesn't have to experience what I did. And I'm asking you, what are your pink shoes? What is it you want to leave behind when you're not around anymore to the ones you love? Thank you. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, fill the gaps in your life story. Be intentional about the influence you have and the mark you make. Remember, Encouraging one person can have a profound effect on the world. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. Someone through until the path was clear.